Entertainment Report podcast round the world. Fair respect that. Every time them play a tune, I just the boom shock attack. Yo, what the big voice, Edly Shine, one half of the bunch Americans, and you don't know at the Entertainment Report podcast with Muscle. You said boom. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is Muscle, and this is another Two Line Music Huts Entertainment Report podcast. And today, we have a really special guest in the building. Listen, you know this man from in the early 90s. He was part of the Born Jamaicans. We're talking about Edley Shine in the building today. What's going on, Big Boss? This is blessings, blessings, respect. Thanks for having me on the platform and the program. Big up to the massive them. No, thank you so very much. I'm very excited to actually have this conversation because I remember Born Americans from, I almost remember the cassette cover. It's just imprinted in my mind from now. I remember I said cassette cover because that's what it was back then. Yeah, sure the age, yeah, sure the age. But it's okay. <laughs> okay. No, it's legacy. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely, definitely. At least shine, the, the man with the big voice, right? And that's what they call me. All right. So let's get into your history here. How did you even get into music in the first place before you even got into Born Americans? Well, I'm from Washington, D.C. originally. I'm the first generation of my family to be born in D.C. from, from Kingston, Jamaica. So my okay. mother and my father are from Johnstown, Kingston, Jamaica. So downtown side. And uh, just growing up in a Jamaican household and a musical family, you know, sound system culture was around me. My uncle owns one of the oldest and longest standing sound systems in Washington, D.C., Emperor. And, um, okay. That was with uh, Rod Deal and those guys used to play Emperor. Yeah, yeah, we used to play Emperor all the time. So you have Freddie Dredd, Lastrad, uh, Olipa, different selectors and personalities and that was the first place I ever saw a Super Cat DJ, Ninja Man DJ over Emperor Sound when they used to come to town to perform at certain dances. So just being um, around that as a youth. And then my father owned a record store in the suburbs of Maryland, out, right outside of DC called Music Box. His name was Zigger. So during the okay. 80s, going into the, the early 90s, he had one of the biggest record stores back when record stores were a thing. Uh, you know, distributing the music. He used to go to Florida and go to New York and go buy all the 45s and 12 inches, bring them back to DC. So a lot of the tastemakers, as far as DJs and stuff like that, bought their music from my dad. So just being around that, you know, yeah. my affinity for dancehall and reggae and growing up in a Jamaican household, that's how you get the Caribbean side to me. Then just growing up in America, going to school, listening to hip hop, man, like, you know, KRS One, Dougie Fresh, Heavy D. Big Daddy Kane, Run DMC, Fat Boys. I saw the whole, well, I'm as old as hip hop. So, yeah. so <laughs> I see hip hop from its inception when it just started getting popular, when Cool Hurt brought the vibes to New York and then it started trickling out and became what it is today, the billion dollar industry. So that's how you Crazy. get the American side to me. And that's where my love for music just blossomed. And I went to a concert as a teenager, Run DMC, Raising Hell. And to see all the artists that I only listened to on, you know, cassette or vinyl or whatever the case, to see that they were actually people and see how they could control the crowd with their songs. I said, yo, I have to know that feeling one day. Yeah. And that's where the passion started. That's where it started. So you had inside the home, you had the reggae. And when you left your home on the streets, it was the hip hop. So right. then when did you decide to, you know what, let's mix the two of these. And how did you end up, you and Notch? 
finding each other or getting together as a group. So uh, one summer I was interning at my father's record store and Notch came in and he started buying a bunch of 12 inches because, you know, back then the reggae, you get the 12 inch, you get the song on the front and the version yeah. or the instrumental on the back. So he's buying all the ones with the instrumental. And I said, why are you buying all these records? You're a DJ? And he's like, nah, I'm going to a club to go sing. And at the okay. time, there was a big reggae club here, one of the premier reggae clubs in D.C. called Kilimanjaro. That's where all the top reggae artists came to perform. So him him doing that sparked my interest. And it was like, you know what? I DJ too. I write and I DJ and I make songs. And we just kind of just kicked it off from there. We exchanged contacts and he came to my crib. And I always had like a little sound system set up in my crib. And when I heard him sing, I'm like, yo, this you talk about wicked vice. He at the time he kind of sing like pinchers and pliers. He was into yes. that style. So I'm I, I heard his voice. I'm like, yo, you could be a wicked singer in your own right. You don't even need to emulate what they're doing in Jamaica. Just hear hear how you write a song. Here's a verse, here's a chorus. And that's kind of how the camaraderie of us making music together started. And the rest is history. We we made a demo tape mm -hmm. and got into some good people hands and born Jamaicans was born. Okay. So is Notch from, he was born in Jamaica or he was born in the States also. So Notch is from the States as well. He was born in Connecticut, but his father is from Jamaica and his mom is Puerto Rican. So he's Spanish, Jamaican, a lot of mixture going on in his lineage, but yeah. him having that influence and me growing up in the Jamaican and the reggae household, and both our parents, my mother was a singer and his dad was a bass player. And we actually okay. found out during the time being in the group that my mother and his father knew each other from doing music in this, yeah. in this band that his father played in. So yeah. we both kind of had similar backgrounds in that way. And that's how the, 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 the fusion came about. Okay. Especially because I know at that time now, because you guys, when did you guys actually form the group and call it Born Americans? Was that when you guys actually got to the label or this was before you got to the label? You guys are. Before. We had our name, we had our identity, we had our mantra before mm -hmm. we got to the label. Like everything was already developed when we went to the record label. We actually had like a four song demo where we got to the label. Boom Shaka Talk was one of the songs, Sweet Honey, so. a lot of a lot of the songs from our first album was on our demo tape. And, um, you know, just, just talking about our experiences and our background, I, you know, if I, if my memory serves, serves me correct, I said, yo, born Jamaicans is the perfect name for us because that's what we are. We are, we're of Jamaican descent, but we live in America and yeah. we always didn't want when we, when we actually got our chance to come out to try to act like we were Jamaican and fool the reggae spear, like, Yo, the credibility of Jamaica already, because we come from Jamaica and we're born up in the sun and we're sitting under the bungo tree at the studio and we produce a focal and we get organic song. We never have no video on these things. Now, nah, we born Jamaican. We're American yeah. kids that know how to do the thing and we wanted that to be known. That's why we chose that name. That makes, that makes sense here because trust me, that was a big, big, big time there. And right then, there was a lot of that sound seemed to be i don't know if you guys made it popular or if you guys walked into that sound that was happening at that time there we, we made it popular it was all it was always present because i wouldn't take credit for creating it because you had before us you had asher d and daddy freddie that was doing reggae and hip-hop you had shinehead who was doing reggae and hip-hop you had heavy d who would tinge a little bit of jamaican in this thing and his collaborations with supercat and things like that 
but we made the hip hop reggae sound globally accepted. And anybody that tried to deny that fact is just living in denial because before yeah. us, it was kind of a niche thing to do, do a hip hop remix of a reggae song, but mm -hmm. there was no representation of it as a group, as a mainstay, as a genre until mm -hmm. born Americans came along. And then at the same time, when we were ushering in, you had Mad Lion, you had Bush Babies, you had other groups that we kind of all came out of the same class of being kids that grew up in either New York, Brooklyn, Florida, L.A. They start coming out the woodworks, but Born Americans was the most popular at the time. Yeah. Wow. And especially coming from D.C., because what was the D.C. scene like at that time there? Because everybody knows about more of the Brooklyn's, right. the New York's and stuff like that. But what was the D.C. scene like when you guys started to come it's out? Funny. It's funny you ask that because D.C. had a big influx of Jamaicans. A lot of the Jamaicans that probably landed in New York and got in trouble in New York end up either moving to Baltimore, D.C. or Virginia. So they had a big Caribbean community from the 70s on up and um you know just the scene was dances so they it was a lot of dances um they had, i remember they used to have reggae in the park on the memorial grounds back in the days and i used to see groups like third world and inner city and gregory isaac and then you had the howard university used to keep reggae shows all the time so yeah. dc was was definitely a tour stop when the reggae artists them that was big in Jamaica getting visa and toured the US. They always came through DC. To DC. Wow. Yeah, because again, when it came to DC, you would always hear about the sound system, which was Emperor, and you also heard about um Earthquake and those sounds there. But as in artist-wise, that was never really the place where you hear. If they're coming out of the States, it would be more of a New York, sometimes Florist type of thing, but not really a DC type of vibe. Right. It was you know, it was a lot of artists that live here, but um, you know they a lot of a lot of them had to go to New York to go record because that's where studios like Don Juan and Jawise and those producers they lived in New York, so it wasn't really a recording scene. You got a lot of foundational um, reggae singers like Carl Malcolm and a host of others, as well as the punk group Bad Brains that mix reggae and and punk rock music. They were from okay. these. So there were artists that were breaking through that were from here, but they weren't as prevalent. You know, they were more on the underground scene or had an organic following. So I think as far as reggae representation coming out of Washington, Orange Americans had the biggest exposure and got the most legs back then. Yeah. No, for sure. I agree with that 100% because that was global. As you said, it was more, there were certain underground things happening, but as in that global look there, that was 1000% born Jamaican. You understand? All right. So then now you guys, I guess, what year did you guys actually get your contract and what was that process like actually getting to sign a contract, especially back then also with this new sound? So... We went to a lot of record companies because at the time, me and Notch, we were doing a lot. We were opening. We opened for Shaba back then. This was before we even were heard of. We opened for Gregory Isaac. We had my uncle, Freddie Dredd, on Emperor Sound. So we were getting a lot of looks. And when we met our manager at the time, Kitson Walker, he's a Jamaican. And he lived in D.C. and he moved to California. So we met him at a studio in D.C. working on our project. And he said, hey, you guys sound like you got something there. He was hearing, you know, a few of the songs that we were working on. He's like, I like the combination and the fusion of the singer and the DJ. 
So when you finish your demo, send it to me because I'm I'm going back to L.A. But I, I meet a lot of interesting people when I'm out partying in L.A. And he just so happened when he got our tem- demo tape, he met a young lady by the name of Leslie Cooney who uh, worked at Delicious Vinyl. At the time, Delicious Vinyl was a big independent record company. They had Tone Loke, Young MC, Brand New Heavy's Far Side, a lot of big acts that were selling a lot okay. of records. But Leslie had a big interest in reggae. She, you know, she grew up on the Cali root scene, going to Jamaica all the time, linking up with different reggae artists. So she always wanted to have a reggae artist signed to Delicious Vinyl that she could push because of her love for the for the genre. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of times when she approached reggae artists, they was asked for big money or they didn't really take her serious. But when she met us, we were the perfect combination. We sounded Jamaican enough. But we had a different appeal with the American side where it wasn't as hard for the marketing and the communications. So I think that was a big sell. And then the music and Kits, Kitson, the manager, his partner was an executive at BET. So we were able to get a look as far as being on Team Summit at BET. Yeah. He presented us to the executives. They could have said no, but yeah. present them and say, hey, this is a new group. They're, un- they're not signed yet. They're unproven. They don't have a fan base, but they have a good sound. And I think they will work for your talent showcase. So when the producers looked at it, they said, sure, we'll have them have them perform. And, you know, we blew that away. Um, And then the label saw us on Teen Summit. We also did Showtime at the Apollo. So we came on national TV. So we were getting all these different looks as an unsigned act. But, you know, for a big record company like, say, your Universal or your Sonys or your Warner Brothers, they, either you got to come through some type of big management channel where they where they can gain control over you and change mm-hmm. your sound and make you commercial. That's what happened to a lot of reggae artists back then. Or they just didn't believe. And for us, because we were unproven, they just said, born Jamaicans, I'd rather go get a Jamaican that, that's from Jamaica. I don't want to deal with American kids trying to do reggae. But Delicious Vinyl, (laughs) that's what it was. But Delicious Vinyl being the boutique label that it was, it was a place we could go and they wouldn't try to change our sound or try to change us. Of course, they wanted us to sell records and be commercially viable, but they let us do our thing. And that's how we end up signing with them. Yeah. Well, And what year was that? This was in 19, the end of 92 going into 93. 92 going into 93. Okay, you guys signed now. And what were some of the first things you guys did on the label? Were you guys actually touring first? You guys were putting together an album? What were some of the first things that you guys did? So in the in negotiating our contract, uh, even the president of the label at the time, even though, you know, he believed in what Leslie was presenting to him, reggae was unproven. The only selling reggae act was Bob Marley and Shabba Ranks and maybe Inner Circle at the time. So... Okay when he looked at the, the the risk because they all deal with numbers when it comes to label, how much we got to spend and how much are we going to make back? He's like, well, I'll give you guys a single deal. And if the single sells a hundred thousand copies within, within 30 days or 60 days, uh, we'll, we'll exercise the option for an album. And our first single was boom shock attack. And I think if I, if I'm correct, it sold a hundred thousand, like within the first month because we did the video as well as we put the single out. We went back to Jamaica. Our first first thought was we need to get, have a song produced by a Jamaican producer. So we, we went to Jamaica. We tried to link with Bobby Digital, but at the time he had a death in the family. 
and he he had stopped recording. He was just taking some time off. So with time passing and us spending money being in Jamaica, we end up coming back home and we realize a lot of the Jamaican producers are not going to take us serious because they don't know what a born Jamaican is. They didn't, we weren't out at the time. They were like yeah. American kids trying to do dance hall and hip hop. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, nah, something wrong with this. Yeah. So every producer that we met, they were in, they were intrigued by it, but it wasn't that, yeah, man, I have something, man, come in. That wasn't that didn't happen till down the road after we were proven and we were out there and had our name. That's when all the producers was like, Yeah, man, them but come in. I have something. So <laughs> that's how it always works after the fact. Okay, yeah, yeah, come in. Yeah, man. So we got the deal and we dropped Boom Shaka Talk. It was produced by Chucky Thompson who actually went on to sign to Puff Daddy's label right after working with us. And he produced for Notorious B.I.G., Mary J. Blige, Faith Evans, and all that. But my cousin was a friend of Chucky, and he said, y'all looking for a producer? I know the best producer in D.C., and he can give you any sound you want. He's a overall 360-degree musician. So when we bought our Studio One samples, the ideals that we had to Chucky, he put them together, and that's how we were able to form our first album. Yeah. The rest is history. Crazy, because when you listen to especially the early work from the first album, most of the actual tracks, they're like original reggae songs with right. hip-hop layered on top of them. To right. give them the, the bass and everything is the same, but the drums are played a bit different. Different, right. Because, uh, I mean, we were getting a lot of backlash back then because reggae was boop, 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 boop. That was considered authentic dancehall or the one drop reggae that people was used to from your Bobby Digitals and your Steely and Cleavies. Mm -hmm. But because we didn't have access to these producers at the time when we were making our album, we just straight went what we knew, which was the reggae that we grew up listening that our uncles and our fathers and our mothers played, the Gregory yeah. Isaac, the Dennis Brown, the Cox and Dodds, the King Tubbies. So we mm -hmm. just took those elements, whatever the favorite was to us, and said, Chucky, put this type of drums from Tribe Called Quest over this and see how it sounds. And Chucky being the musician that he is, he understood the dynamics of the reggae and what would fit with the hip hop. And it just blended. And then Notch came with the beauty part, which was the singing to bring yeah. the girls in. He had the image and the look that the girls like. And I was the beast, the rough neck, yeah. <laughs> and rough voice to get them hype. And they just loved the contrast of how everything was so different, but blending together so well. And that's what made the group work. Yeah. So Boom Shakalak was the first one. And that was a hit for you guys right away after it came out. Right. And then I guess that was the one that actually put you guys on tour or you guys went back and now signed for an album and worked the album. What happened after that? So when Boom Shakalak came out, uh, yeah, we went on tour. We, we, were, we were working on the album because after the success of the single, that initial buzz that it was having, it started impacting on radio and things of that such. So the label opened up the budget and the budgets wasn't big right then. Like the budget, the budget for an album right now, hold on, sorry. The, all right. The budget, the budget for an album back then is somebody chain right now. Our entire budget, marketing, uh, <laughs> recording, <laughs> paying producers, paying lawyers, paying managers, that whole budget, Migos got that around their ankles in this Great. day. 
So we we made both of those albums for dirt cheap, you know, according to the standards of what budgets are in in 2020, you know, mm-hmm. right? Like right now, you give an artist that, they're going to look at you and be like, all right, man, I'll go to the jewelry store and come back. <laughs> give me the real budget. <laughs> it's crazy. But we made yeah. it work. Made it work and we were able to live and put the album together. And we went on tour with Shaba Rankin. That was our first, very first tour was with Shaba Rankin. When Shaba won the Grammy, that was the year he won the Grammy. Crazy. I went from one year being on my couch watching Shaba on TV with Maxi Priest and KRS-One till a year later, I'm on the tour bus. And and Shaba like, yo, Jummy, like all your work to show last night. But it was just like, a dream like I, I felt like i was in a dream sequence and this was going to come to an end sometime soon because yeah. it couldn't re- this couldn't really be happening but it was happening and yeah it was definitely an experience going mm-hmm. on tour with shaba yeah so shaba was the first one you went on tour with so then when did like the bojo and all of those ones or those tours come into play so as as the album came out and we gained more popularity because the album hit the caribbean hard we were popular in every place in the Caribbean except okay. Jamaica. Jamaica was the only place in the world that shunned us off the rip. And a lot okay. of things came into play while Jamaica shunned us. One, they just didn't understand why American kids was doing reggae. <laughs> it just didn't sound like the dog art dance hall that they was getting. Cause this is penthouse era. This is 94, 95 when Buju's coming through, Terra Fabulous mm-hmm. is coming through, Terry Gansey, Dave Kelly is running Jamaica. Every song is a hit. And just that sound was so dominant and was in the people's psyche that anything outside of that just sound like noise to them. Mm-hmm. But if, if you leave Jamaica and you go across the street to Haiti, if you go to the VI, you go to Trinidad, you go to any other place in the world, Born Americans was at the hierarchy of what people thought was good reggae music, good yeah. dance music. So we was tearing up the islands crazy. And, um, you know, we always had the chip on our shoulder that, yo, one day we're going to circle back, find the right rhythm, jump on it, and win over Jamaica and make them realize what they've been missing out on. And then they'll go back and listen to our older stuff. Mm-hmm. But it just never end up happening for whatever reason. Okay, that was just one place that you guys could just never conquer as a duel for Jamaican. We couldn't yeah. conquer. And it's funny because the sound system and the artists, all of them loved us. Like... Yeah. You know, King Adi's sound from New York was the first sound to voice us on dub plate. Um, and I think, now that I think back on it, I think label would have a overall organic ca- campaign, which they tried to do, because I can remember us working with, like, uh, Sharon Burke and doing things in Jamaica. We did okay. reggae, reggae sunfest in Jamaica. They window-wiped us off the stage. Like, they <laughs> that they don't know. You know? They didn't boo us, but, you know, when... Y'all work out, you get the window wipe. It's like, yo, I'm not feeling this right now. I didn't come to see yeah. you guys win me over. I came to see the headliner, Bounty Killer, Beanie Man. But, and at this time, where were you guys in your career outside of Jamaica? Were you guys big already this time, or you guys were still on the come up? Yeah, we was we was big everywhere outside of Jamaica. So we even end up, because of that, uh, doing the Reggae Sunsplash show in Jamaica, we end up going on tour with Reggae Sunsplash in Japan. And on that tour was Maxi Priest, uh, Bujubantan, Shined, all big dogs, all the biggest groups in reggae was on there. And we were a part of that tour. 
And that was all from them seeing us in Jamaica and even having the gall to walk on a stage in Jamaica, knowing that no sound in Jamaica is playing our record. No radio station is playing our record. And the only time a Jamaican would see us is the ones that had cable. And cable wasn't so prevalent. Like if we were to drop now in 2020, we would mush up Jamaica totally. We will be the biggest yeah. thing in Jamaica because now they got the internet and everybody has cable and they would have seen the videos and heard the music outside of the biasness of the politics of radio and the gatekeepers of reggae. That was like, I mean, I've not invested interest in a bunch of Americans. So when, when we get them CD, I get to that man, I eat the food off of them. That was yeah. the mentality. So it was a lot of things that played into that. Mm-hmm. So, but it's it's crazy just to imagine what you guys are going through. It's like, okay, we're here, we're doing a lot of shows, we're doing a lot of songs, and we have the place on lock everywhere right. outside of this place where we're actually getting the music from. Like, what's wrong with you guys here? Please just listen to what we're doing. It's the equivalent, it was the equivalent of like a down south rapper from maybe like Georgia going to New York in 1992 or 93 or 94. And because remember, Outcast wasn't accepted by the East Coast and all the, the, no. the affectionado hip hop people. They had to remember they when the year they won the Source Awards, the New York crowd booed Outcast. Yeah, they was like, we don't want to hear them Southern. They talk country. They look like some some bammers. They dress funny. We New York. We hardcore. So yeah. it's that same mentality. They just don't want to grow. But look what end up happening. The South end up taking over hip-hop totally where really? New York can't even catch a breath right now. They have to assimilate and sound like the people that they used to be mad at. Same thing in Jamaica now. Now they had to assimilate. And now before when twanging and using American slangs and putting pop culture in dance hall was shunned back then. Now me and when I say, yo, my, me, 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 I type right like my MacBook Pro. Like back then, Pro <laughs> in Jamaica, yeah, burner phone and those stuff there. You know, yeah, I mean? they they burn a phone and we in the trap. Like Jamaicans wouldn't talk like that back then. They wouldn't use anything except Wagwan Ayad. But now it's different. It's more open thanks to cartel, like freeing up the mind and just yeah. removing all the barriers. Now you can say what you want to say. So it's yeah. more easier for other different type of thoughts and different type of slangs and things to go through. So it just you're, was you're, ahead of our time. You're, you're, you're right. And we're talking about the first album here was Kids From Farn, right? Right. Okay. So then you guys are going through, you guys have, how many songs were actually big songs off of Kids From Farn? I mean, commercially you had, you had Boom Shaka Talk, Season Seckle, Sweet Honey, One and Sign. And gotta get mines, yeah. which features Shinehead, Sleepy Wonder, and and Mad Lion. How am I forget my big brother, Mad Lion? <laughs> so all of those songs came out and like they they fit different markets. Like Gotta Get Mine was big in New York and on the hip hop underground. One and Sign, Boom Shaka Talk, Cease and Sec, kind of crossed what they on the R and B urban charts on, on Billboard. Like these singles was top ten rap singles. You know, so they were crossing over and people were falling in love with the sound. When we when we released the Yardcore album now, that's when we started crossing over. That's when we started, you know, meeting Beyonce and H-Town and all, of, you know, being on Soul Train and things of that. Okay, you're, you're going pretty fast. <laughs> I mean, it's like a whirlwind, like. Yeah. 
it's so we're much going fast. We're going to slow that. down. Because All right, bring it back to things that we need. Or, yes, man, because because we're going to get there. I need those Beyonce stories and those stuff. <laughs> <All right. laughs> With so, the yeah. kids from foreign, okay, you guys are going to, you guys have five commercial hits off of this album. That's cool. You guys are touring, radios bubbling, and everything now. So, what was it? Was it hard to now go from the first album to now your sophomore album? Because they always say the sophomore drinks. What was that pressure like actually now creating the second album? So, after coming off of Kids from Foreign, we were aware, we were very aware of the backlash that was coming from Jamaica. Because you got to remember, Jamaica dictates your v validity as far as an artist in reggae and dancehall. I don't care who you are, I don't care how much money you got from wherever. If you're doing reggae music and dancehall music and you don't have that little small cosign from Jamaica, it can it can determine your value amongst the promoters and the club and, and radio in the international market. That's why it's important to have some type of campaign as a reggae and dancehall artist in Jamaica because it's the home, it's where it came from. Mm -hmm. So us knowing that and knowing that we were missing a piece of the puzzle. You know, I can remember telling Notch, like, yo, I'm on some yardcore things right now. I'm like, now I'm, I really, now that we have this popularity, I really want to drive our point home of who we are. Because I think a lot of people miss the memo of who we are. Yeah. That's how the concept for Yardcore came about. And, you know, I remember writing the lyrics, Jamaica is an island, Mr. Under the Sun. Some of bond, but my heritage strong. Washington, I will live in the art of Babylon. The world can hear yardcore slang. So sing along. Y A R D. That was I was talking to the people in Jamaica like, yo, I I never said I was from here, but my heritage, I'm a culture, and the barrel always gets sent every <laughs> every quarter down to Jamaica to my family them. So regardless how you you may think you don't you don't want to embrace me. Now, one, I wanna, and when the world looks at me, they see a Jamaican because of how good I can emulate your slangs and your language and 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 pro pro propel that to the world. You know, I'm representing you, yeah, hardcore. So that's that's really what, where where we stood going into the second album. Yeah, and was it a lot of pressure to actually come up with the second album that time there as new artists? And how long was it between the Kids from Foreign and the Yardcore album? So Kids from Foreign was released in 94, um, like right early in the summer of 94. Yardcore came out, I want to say 96, either 96 or 98. You know, I'm getting older now. The yeah. days is, is blending into each other. Trust but me, trust me. It was like a two and a half year gap because we were touring because we were, that was our only way to make money was being on tour, doing shows. Really the royalties were coming in because what happened is because we were on an independent label, um, they would develop the groups, record the projects and everything, and then shop everything as a package to a major. So when we started, we started, we were on Island records. That was our distributor. So we would go to New York and go meet with Island and we had a publicist and all that in the middle of our project. That, that relationship would either end or something would happen and it would be severed. And when you're in the middle of working an album and your distribution cut, that means no albums are being shipped to the stores, no cassettes, anything. So we had all these hot songs out, but it was hard for people to purchase our albums. So that affected our record sales. Got you. So 
going into Yardcore album, I mean, we we went through so many labels. I can remember us working with East West Records, uh, and that's Atlantic, and we were pulled in with Terra Fabulous and Nadine Sutherland and all the all the reggae or Caribbean yeah. tinged artists. Then we moved over to Sony. Sony had a distribution situation. And all of this was going on while we were trying to get our album together for it to come out. And as soon as the Yardcore album came out and the single dropped, Yardcore just took off like a rocket. It was like within the span of maybe a month or two. Okay. Yardcore was just like at, at its pinnacle, like on some classic level type. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm on the thing I work. Now, now, now they understand. Jamaica was starting to understand a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was just a situation with the distribution where people couldn't find the record. So that was kind of disappointing. And that was yeah. part of the dissension that it ultimately caused the group to disband. But yeah. let me not let me not jump the gun. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So then no stories. Yes, Yardcore, Yardcore comes out now. You guys are in a, almost like a different stratosphere than when you guys were with kids from porn. Right. All right. Where did this actually put you and who were some of the people you met? Because now you said Beyonce and stuff. I need these stories back. <laughs> <laughs> so when the Yardcore album came out, the record company emphasized that, hey, because during the time when we were recording the Yardcore album, Fuji's had dropped the score. And Killing Me Softly was murdering radio. Fuji's okay. biggest thing. I can remember us bucking up the Fuji's at BET. Lauren Hills, Lauren Hill sees us and hugs both of us and say, yo, I love you guys. You guys are, are special and keep doing what you're doing. And this was, was when Fuji's was on their run with Killing Me Softly and The Score when we mm-hmm. met them. Um, and just that whole album, we, the label was taking a more commercial approach. They were going, they were aiming higher. So a lot of the songs, they, you know, they were trying to emphasize, hey, maybe not... Sh- should lead on a lot more of the songs because they quote unquote thought that his voice and his singing is what could cross us over and get us to that left side number one spot on the billboard got you at the time i was doing a lot of the main writing in the group concepts writing lyrics sometimes i would even demo songs and give them to notch so he could listen to them to find his key and his pitch how he wanted to sing them so I didn't take my credit as a writer back then. And that's something that sometimes I sit back and be like, yeah, I should have, I should have let my contribution be seen more, but I was a team player and I was in a group. So. Sorry about that there. We're back here. No, it's just the internet. When you're doing these things, internet based, you had the mercy of the thing there. Okay. Start back. You were doing most of the writing for the group. So like the concept for boom shaka talk, that was me. The concept for kids from firing, that was me. A lot of stuff. And back then I didn't talk like this. I didn't like let it be known the individual things that I did that I did. But I learned over the years and I learned and as the group disbanded that yeah. a, a legacy is only as good as what you highlight to people because people will forget what you did and not pay attention to what you did. They'll just yeah. group everything into, yeah, man. Like the group, the thing I did bad. Me no, me don't really know what the DJ did the but. It did work, but (laughs) so as me coming out with my own endeavors now, I make it be known, yo, yeah, yeah, I was the chief writer and conceptualized group and no one can dispute that. So with the label pushing the singing of the group, 
You know, there were songs that came into play, like they, they had Notch do a remake of um, Takes That, I Want You Back, which was, at the time, I heard it, it was, it, I said, this is a wicked song, but we came to find out that Singing Melody had a version of it out already in reggae, with a reggae standard rhythm, so, and which was already big on the reggae circuit. Okay. So we were like, okay, that can be part of the album. We end up linking up with Salam Remy, who was the producer for the Fugees. So Salam gave us a song called Send My, which was a remake of Stevie Wonder's song. So when the label heard that, they was like, yes, I eat this. Stevie Wonder not singing, Ed's doing his little man I live in, but really, you know, the song too much where Pop America is going to make it that it sound too aggressive with Lee's rough voice. It's more singing. We love it. We're going to follow up with the, with the Take That remix, and you guys are going to go triple platinum. Trust us. But in the back of my mind, I always knew that, hey, them trying to take the, trying to bring us over to the commercial world would never work. The commercial world would have to log on to us and our frequency of what we're doing organically and accept it and embrace it and pay that. So we drop Yardcore, we drop um, drop Send My Love record. Send My Love takes off at radio. Like, pop radio is playing Send My Love. So at the time, you had like H-Town knocking boots. You had Destiny Child with the YKF remix, No, No, No. Yeah, Bone Thugs and Harmony with uh, Crossroads at the time. All these crossover songs. And in different big, big radio markets, Send My Love was winning the top at eight. And all this as the biggest song in that market. So when we caught what would, quote unquote, be a hit to the label, yeah, the industry was like, not so fast. In order for you to be on the left side of the billboard on the number one spot, in order for radio to go hard and play this song 10 times a day on each one of these clear channel and radio one stations, mm -hmm. there's a promotional feed that goes along with playing your record every day and beating it in people's heads to make it go gold and platinum. Okay. You have to pay the promotional fee. And when the label said a promotional fee, because remember, yeah. you can't pay to have a record played, but you have to pay the promotional okay. fee. <laughs> so okay. label didn't want to pay the promotional fee. So guess what happened? Our record became a hit to everyone, but didn't have the backing of the corporation in order mm -hmm. to make it a hit song that goes on to go number one and win a Grammy and all of that stuff. So the song ended up falling flat of its goal because... It didn't have the backative as yeah. well as the label didn't have distribution at the time because once again them and the distributor is in problems over numbers or whatever the case so mm -hmm. bunch americans is on the road doing all these big radio shows at we're on stadiums now i can remember us doing a radio show in san diego and our man knocks on the door and says hey my daughters want to want to meet you and we look yeah. it's matthew knows and his and his daughter and her group is Destiny Child. They come in hard, and Beyonce comes in and says, "Hey, I love you guys. I love reggae. I'm going to do reggae music one day." This is exactly what she said to us. And we take pictures, and we're like, "How old are you guys?" They wouldn't tell us their age. I guess they were media trained not to give away their age. So we met her, and I I think my road manager back then, Just Spice, has the picture because when I tell this story, people look at me like, "Oh, you're just an old man telling an old lie." But no. <laughs> <laughs> did meet her back then and yeah, she became yeah. what she became but as we were doing the radio run and having 
the commercial success on the surface, but not mm-hmm. seeing the financial gain and the industry props game because our label didn't have the collateral to pay to play. Yeah. We end up falling short. And that was a big disappointment. Even to Salam to this day, every time I see him and we talk about it, he's like, man, that record was out of here. How y'all let that happen? Like, yo, the promotional nice. fee. The promotional like, fee. He know what it is. He know what it takes for a record to actually work. It could be the buddiest song ever. Back then, mm-hmm. if you didn't have radio in the palm of your hand pushing your record and had certain people writing up about your group and all that, you're not going to sell any records, no matter how talented you are. So yeah. it is what it is. So it was. It's industry politics where I guess now that the internet is wrong, it kind of, it's, there's still gatekeepers in certain markets, but it kind of equalized things a bit more. Yeah. Or a bit more. You still have to have your money still because it's certain things that, and we'll get into that because I'm faced with that now with my own independent project where mm-hmm. I'm kind of reaching the pinnacle of what I could do on my own. And I have to start talking to some of these gatekeepers and these gatekeepers are not free. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. All right. So then right now, as you said, the album Yardcore is bubbling. You guys are touring, but you guys aren't really making no money as in it's only the tour that you're making money, but you're not making no money off of your music and it's right. not getting pushed on the radio. Right. What kind of strain did that put on the duo itself between you and Notch? A lot of strain because, you know, Notch made certain sacrifices to be in the group as well as so did I. Neither one of us went to college and got a trade mm-hmm. and music was all we wanted to do from a youth. And as things started to progress and, and digress, I, I should say, you know, we started looking at like, yo, what are we going to do next? Because we can't continue doing the same things and expecting new results. And the label promises are starting to wear thin on us. Mm-hmm. And even with our management, I mean, we were, the fee that we were charging to perform, psh, that's people, that's that's probably one plane ticket for our artists right now to, to, to go wherever they're going in the continental U.S. On yeah. We was getting to go perform a whole show. I think some of our highest pay dates was probably when we went to Africa and maybe one or two Caribbean dates because they were big shows. Yeah. But back then, you know, the the management was kind of scaling how they would charge the fee based upon where our popularity was, chart, and how much people we could we would bring. But I can remember back then us doing big shows and I'm just like, yo. When the money divide up, I'm only coming home with this. I, I could pay my cable bill and, and buy a, a plate of food, and that's it. I'm going to just sweat out my vice box for an hour upon stage. It just, it just stopped making sense after a while. Yeah, and especially you're you're now everybody's, because you know when you get the popularity now, right. people think the money's coming. So then when the money comes, that's when everybody's in your ear, in your pocket, wants something, this and that. And then it puts you in a real funny situation. I'm going to tell you a funny story, and I never told this story to anybody. This is exclusive to you. I remember us going on tour. I think it was Sunsplash tour, and we went to Japan. Mm-hmm. And I did the math of what I would take home. This was probably consecutive dates. So this was the biggest payday as far as I knew at the end when all the money was divided up, what, a, what I would have. So when I, I had put in my mind on my birthday, I'm going to buy a GS300. I never had a car up to that point. All my cars was hand-me-downs. I never bought a car for myself. So I said, if I'm going to buy a car, I'm going to buy the car I want. I'm not going to be practical. I'm like, 
19 right now. I'm like, I'm on TV. Songs is playing. I'm putting in all this work, sweating, sweating my ass off. I want to come home and jump in my nice car and take a ride. So we do the tour. And I come home. Notch goes off. He gets whatever he gets. I get what was the quote unquote it car at the time. It was a GS 300 Lexus. Yeah. I kept that car for 20 something years. Wow. <laughs> I kept that car for 20 years because for one, mm-hmm. it was my first car that I ever bought and I paid it off. I didn't owe no car note or nothing on it. And I was just proud of it. But it came to the point where it was time for it to go. But just trying to be practical and trying to think for the future and think that things would get better when actually they were getting worse kind of led to the demise of the group. Okay. And then now where did the cracks really start to come? Was it the label was cracking first or you as a group were now we were friends first, but now we start bucket heads. What really started to crack first? Our first, our first crack was in our management because we just felt like we outgrew the management, which happens a lot with groups and, and things, you know, when you have a manager that's organic and yeah, they might know the business to a certain extent and they might be able to, they build in relationships and they were on the road. We tried, we tried to, Hey, don't go on the road with us, stay in the office, fill some calls, make some new relationships, build some other things for us instead of you being on the road, just talking to promoters, collecting the money, enjoying the spoils of on tour. But we just getting the show money. We're not doing no commercials. We're not doing anything else. So that that led to some dissensions and we end up splitting with our management at the time. Okay. So then that led to the record company putting their foot in the relationship between me and the singer. And, you know, I can't tell you exactly what was done or what was said or whatever, but our relationship just started splitting apart where he felt like he wanted to do his thing. And I'm just like, where's all this coming from? I'm like, I don't mind if you want to go do a solo album with the label, that's fine. But at the same time, nothing you do is going to eclipse where we are as a group. We're a household name, regardless. We just need to restructure our business and find some people that can do the thing the right way on a bigger level. And I think we had enough track record at the time where we could have probably went on and did that. But somebody else had another ideal somewhere and put that, put that wedge between us where he went his way. And I end up having to go my way. And what ended up happening after the Yardcore album, I was released from the record company. You know, I tried to negotiate with them to get back in the studio. Mm-hmm. I said, hey, I gave them a laundry list. I want to work with Timberland. I want to work with this one, that one. I just wanted to show them that, hey, I am willing to work. Mm-hmm. You know, right now the communication is not great with the other member, but that's something that can be worked out. But we still have to work. Mm-hmm. I, we built up a whole infrastructure that, a money-making machine. Why do you want to sever ties with that? And they just was like, Edley, we don't have any money to give you. We can't record you. We can't do anything with you right now unless it's a group. And I was like, all right. So I knew what was coming because this was the plan all along was just to get rid of me so they could focus on what they felt was marketable and viable. And that worked out how it worked out for them. I ended up just going my way and finding my way in life without Born Americans. And what year was this where you would say, okay, the group officially disbanded? This was in 1998. Our last tour was with Shaggy. When Shaggy had boom busting in, in, in Hawaii, mm-hmm. that was when the announcement was, was made that this is no group and severing ties and everything. And then there was no communication between me 
and the other member for probably almost 20 something years after that. What so long? And especially, I guess this is what a lot of people talk about the industry, where the industry is a thing that could really drive family and friends apart. Because remember, you guys just came in, you're writing songs, it was cool and everything and dandy. Right. But then when the the money didn't even really started to come in crazy. It was more the popularity and people right. in your ears that started right. to drive the wedge. So it's like, my friend, we're no longer friends because it's something that really had nothing to do with us in the first place. This is true. And it's the, it's the business. The music business manipulates and it separates. Then it destroys. Yeah. That's how it works. Yeah. And if you don't have a strong mind and a strong will, and the ability to assimilate to different situations and different people. This is why you see a lot of artists end up on drugs, end up on alcoholics, end up dying because the industry puts them in this box and it's like, we'll give you all the vices that you need, but you have to play by our rules and you can't have a mind of your own. You can't be your own person. And you see all these movies and all these documentaries about different artists, them going through depression, them, them trying to find their own identity outside of what a record company wants them to be. It's a lot of things that goes into it. Me, I just always had a militant mind and, and th thought of my own. People sometimes mistake that as arrogance, but I'm just, I'm just humbly aware of who I am and what my capabilities are. And no matter how much my people might say, Chaman, but a DJ than you in a Jamaica, man. You're not bad like whoever the hot dude is, cartel, busy yeah. signal, assassin. Yeah, you know? None of that don't affect me because this this mind here is operates in its own world. And if it's nine times out of ten, if it's sound good to me, I'll play it for some people. They'll give me their opinion. I'll make my adjustments. But that's not going to calm me down to make me feel like I'm lesser than what who I am and what I'm supposed to be. Because I've watched the words that I've written down on a paper in my mother's basement move a stadium of people. So why would your opinion affect me? It's just facts. You know, yeah. I watch mantras and things that I created in my mind go out in the world and change culture. Things that I've said, people have taken it and made careers out of it. And it's not, it's not, I'm not saying that out of arrogance. I'm just saying, I know the spirit that lives within me have something to offer the world, even if the world don't appreciate it. So yeah. it is what it is. And I totally understand 100%, but you saying that, again, it's something, when you come up with an idea in your mind and you actually see it come to life and you see how people react to it, that's an amazing right. feeling. So then that's why I understand where you're coming from 100%. Okay, right. the group's on a decline here. What was the last serious conversation you had with Notch before everything just fell apart? Uh, wow, I never, I never talked about that before. Our last serious conversation that we had, and we've had a lot more since then. Mm -hmm. But back then, at that time, we I think this happened when we did the L.A. Reggae Jazz Festival. And that's when we had the conversation when Notch told me his intentions was to leave the group behind. Mm -hmm. and, I, and he said, hey, we both on two different ships right now. You need to sail off on your ship and go your way. I need to sail off on my ship and go my way. And I'm like, okay, so we both want individual ships, but what about this big marina port that we just built that everybody comes and buys commerce from? You're just going to abandon the whole thing? Mm -hmm. I was like, why the ships can't stay and dock at, at, the, at the port that we built and do things under one umbrella? And I think whatever seeds that were sown back then, 
by other people and what he conceptualized in his mind led him to believe that him going his own way was the best decision for him. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? I respect your decision. It's going to affect me a lot. It's going to affect my life in a big way, but I have to accept it because, you know, I, I, I had to like really look into myself and be like, yo, y'all not brothers. Y'all weren't born at the hip. Yeah. You know? And everything happens for a moment in time. Sometimes people come in your life for that moment. So you learn certain things and see certain things and then they go away. Nothing, nothing is certain. Nothing is sure. So I just humbly said, okay, if that's how you feel. But I did say to him, I said, nothing you do moving forward will eclipse born Jamaicans. And I think he resented me saying that to him. Like, yeah. what are you saying? You know, see me, I'm a big singer. And he's done things that people have highlighted as an individual for him. So I don't take nothing away from his talent, his abilities as a writer, all of that, because he has established himself in other genres of music and done a lot of great things since the group where people can point at me and say, see, the singer, I, I do it big without you. You, you yeah. was just an anchor around his leg. You was dependent on him mm-hmm. for, for, for get you through what you lack as an artist. And I, when pe- I, know, I know how people think, and the people that think that, I just laugh at them because I know who I am. I know what my capabilities are. I know what I did within the group to make the group work. Yeah. So when people downplay my role and think that, I was just like a, a, a cast member in a big movie or a side man or a sidekick. I don't take offense to it. I just laugh and be like, one day you're going to hear something from me or see me do something that's going to change that perception that you have of me because it's based on your perception of me, you For know? Sure. And, and it's just the way it is. Look at, look at any group that been out. There's always the front member that people adore they're usually the the most marketable person visually, sonically. They're more pleasing to the listener, and people will gravitate towards them, and they will make them the focus and and the incubation part of that group for their love for the group. But they don't really pay attention to the heart and the soul and the other mechanics that's making the group work. Mm-hmm. Not until the group is gone and they don't have anything new to reference, and it's no more. And it's like, man, that was a good thing. I miss that. Do you get that? Damn, ugly, yo. I remember when you said this line and this line changed my life. Yeah. Why we can't get back to that? Mm-hmm. It's because of how the industry works, how music works, and just people's mind. Yeah. You can't fight it. And that that makes sense again, because people don't really understand where when a group or even an individual is on such a high, a lot of people don't realize what's really happening in the background. Right. As you said, a lot of people are on these big stage in front of thousands of people. And in their heart, it's hurting them. You know what I mean? Because they know this is all a facade. Yeah, you guys see me here, but I'm not making no real money. I don't feel good in this position because my label is telling me what to do and I'm not really exercising what I think I should be doing as an artist. Right. You know what I mean? So it's really serious, especially when you go through it. Now, so you say, okay, the group dismembered. And what year did you say that was? This was in 1998. 1998. Okay, so then Notch decided they started to market Notch, I guess, under the same label you guys were on? So, and I never found this out till later on, like probably 15, 20 years after, because I don't know what happened, because all communication between me and him severed. We never talked. I never called this phone. Yeah. He never called my phone for 20-something years. So, coming to find out, you know, just catching up and picking up, yes, they did try to record 
and market him as an individual artist. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reasons, I'll let you, I'll let when he, you talk to him, mm -hmm. if he wants to share the intricacies of what happened with that relationship and why that never came to fruition. Mm -hmm. But he ended up making a shift and moving on from doing reggae music and he started doing the Latin market. And he became he became a prominent figure in that market early out when the Latin invasion started. Okay. And I'm not surprised by that because his talent is just immense in that in that caliber where he could take another part of his heritage because for what 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 he encompassed in Born Jamaicans was just his Jamaican side. His Latin side really wasn't being expressed. So he I get, he used that, which was a genius move on his part. So he was able to build up his own catalog and do things and and kind of be like a metamorphosize into different genres of different music with his talent and stay afloat as an artist. Whereas me now, I went to Jamaica trying to jump on some rhythms with some different producers, try to find a new sound for myself. And none of the producers that I linked in Jamaica, who were the hottest producers in 99, 2000, 2001, they were all like, why, Edley? The rhythm full up, you know. We don't, we don't really, we don't really have no room for you down here in Jamaica, you know. Mm -hmm. Come check me, come check me out next time, Bridget. We'll see what you we can. know those what you know those ones already. You know but those ones. I blame I blame my naiveness as well for going to Jamaica and not and not, and thinking that hey, I'm Edley from Born Jamaicans. If I if I approach producers humbly and tell them what I'm trying to do, then I go work with me and. I'll yeah. go work on something. That's not how Jamaica works. Every Jamaican knows that. Y'all come from foreign and y'all look something from a Jamaican. Walk with your money. What? <laughs> We're saying you guys have this big, massive name. Even if they're not embracing it, they right. know who you are, you know. Right. So it's like, buddy, well, you're going to come I was, so, I was so separated from that mind state of me being this commercialized artist that's been on TV and all that. I was not even thinking that way. I was thinking, yeah, my man, go check him on. Yeah. Gonna talk music and he's gonna see that I'm a cool guy and I'm not big headed. And I'm gonna give him, I'm gonna show him some of my ideals. Maybe he might like one and find a rhythm and put me on it. And just that little open space right there will build me up where McCann start record for some other producers. I'm build up my thing. Maybe get another label interested in dealing with me. Yeah. But I was naive to think that that would even work. Yeah. Walk with I your money. <laughs> that's the only way anything done in jamaica from them time that till now if you're a foreigner going to jamaica to go do any type of business music corporate business anything walk with your money you understand <laughs> I, I learned the hard way yeah you get it okay and then no when the group broke up how old were you at that time there i was like probably in my late 20s late 20s okay so you've been so you're a grown adult you know what's going on this time right. but again remember music in that style is like a young man's game so then right. you're in your late 20s right. and now you're going into 30s it's like man what am i gonna do here because you know that 19 20 21 22 that's where you're gonna really get the spark out of them right. you understand as an artist and a musician what was the biggest lesson you learned good or bad as born Americans? Um. The biggest lesson I learned, mm -hmm. and this is something that I'm going to teach my daughter. My daughter is two right now, but just okay. two years ago. Congratulations. Um, never be loyal to anyone or any situation more than you're loyal to yourself, period, point blank. That was my greatest lesson learned being in a group. 
Never be loyal to anyone or any situation more than you're loyal to yourself. Be loyal to yourself first. And it, it have nothing to do with being selfish, have nothing to do with being arrogant, but mm-hmm. you have to put yourself first when you're doing business mm-hmm. and going into situations with different people because when it starts and there's no finances involved and there's no hype and there's no people around, it's we. But as things grow and things escalate and things start to become very, very hectic, it becomes me. Mm-hmm. So you have to focus on from the inception of the idea to how it's going to get done and how everything is going to be executed. You have to be like, no, this this is the credit I want. This is how much I want for each thing that I do. And this is how my name is going to be on the marquee. If you don't do that, you're just going to be in for a rude awakening. So you have to be clear. Yeah. Be clear about what you want from the beginning of this situation. Right. So everybody knows what it is. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's crazy. Again, when you see the mountain, I like to use this term, mountain peak. Like you've been there, you've seen it, you right. got to the top. You right. know what I mean? So you say your first moves were okay. I'm gonna go to Jamaica, try to do that. That didn't work out. So then where do you go from there then? What was Headley on from there? So I'm moonlighted like doing writing because I was living in LA at the time. I stayed at LA. And what happened, um, me and Mad Lion had became real cool. We we developed like a big brother, little brother relationship okay. from the hardcore album. And um, so when I told Lion what was going on with me, he was like, Hey, I'm in LA. KRS-One just got a, a executive per, um, position at Warner Brothers, and okay. we have a budget. So he's like, "Come out!" He's like, "Come out, LA." He's like, "Manua say you bad writer. Yeah, you have all the ideas, at least. So just come out. I'll go work on some music. I'm gonna make sure you could pay your bills." So I end up going to LA, living with Lion for years out there with him. Okay. And we worked on the album. The album was called Predator or Prey, and I was able to, you know, eat our food, pay my bills. If Lion go out on the road, he would let me come out with him, open the show, do my do my classic Born American songs. I wasn't top billing anymore because yeah. I didn't have the group. So I had I couldn't get the lion's share of the money because mm-hmm. I, w- I was just a member of his entourage now. I wasn't being presented as Edley Shine, a solo act from the yeah. group Born Americans. Mm-hmm. And I think me developing a relationship with Lion and then meeting KRS and and working with him, working with the both of them in the studio, it kind of gave me my confidence back as far as because when you have somebody that you grew up with listening to and then mm-hmm. you're in the studio writing with him and he hears your concepts and then you hear him saying your concepts and your words and saying, yo, this is dope, Edley. He's like, yo, I didn't know. And I'm like, yo, right. you don't even understand what you're doing right now because I, you're one of the first cassettes I ever bought was KRS-One, my philosophy. one so, guy. So I think God was showing me that, hey, if you really want to do this, this is what you, I'm going to destroy everything that you knew about yourself and rebuild you to a point where, where no one can break your confidence. No one can put a chink in your armor anymore. No matter what they do, no matter what they say to you, you're just going to laugh them off and keep going forward. And I think me growing through that whole process of me having my own thing and then having to be part of someone's else situation and me getting to see certain things. It just groomed me into the man I became. And I ended up, the album came out, but uh, the situation with Warner Brothers didn't work out. KRS ended up leaving. And I kind of was running around LA, me and Lion, trying to, trying to do shows, do whatever. 
Lion went in, went into another industry as far as the cannabis. And I was like, you know, this looks very lucrative, Lion, but this is not my thing. I don't even smoke. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so him, him being the connoisseur and him being the Brooklyn hustler that he is, he went off and did that. I came back home. And I said, Edley, you got to figure out something to do for yourself. I know you want to do music, but music require finances. And you need the ability to record yourself, produce yourself, make your own videos, and do what you need to do. Hire your people, your your, your PR service and all that. I knew that I, I used to say this to myself. How are you going to do that if you're a part of someone else's situation, just trying to hang on, trying to wait for an opportunity to get back to where you were before? So I came back home. And I, and I got a regular job. I ended up, I was always good with computers. Okay. So I ended, up getting, I ended up getting a computer job. And I just kept doing that over the years, over the years, over the years. For about 10 years, I built a studio in my house and I started recording. I started doing remixes. So I have a crew called Refix Kings, which is me and a producer, Jay Butter. And we, we started putting out remixes and they started getting popular with all the DJs. We did like Drake songs. We did Beyonce songs, anything that was hot on the charts that was kind of had that style that could fit over a dance hall rhythm. Doing the remixes, it kind of got me popularized with the new DJs. Cause you gotta remember from 98, 2000, and this is like 2010 when I had my studio start doing remixes. Okay. I think the first one we did was 50 Cent Baby by me and that took off. I must, I must send the refixings package. It's like about 40 of them, but they're okay. all dancehall remakes of popular R&B and hip hop songs. And the DJs love them. So yeah. everybody start calling me the big voice. On the remixes, I would be like, oh, the big voice, Adler Shine, Refix Kings. So oh. that kind of became the moniker. So that showed me again. It's like, yo, look, Adley, look how you reinvent yourself again. Came with another moniker that people are embracing. Yeah. That spirit is talking to you again. So from the Refix Kings, um, that popularity with Jay Butter, I went to Jamaica and I met a producer by the name of Roe Summers. Roe was a producer at Downsound, Joe Bogdanovich and Skata. Mm -hmm. He worked with them. And he was producing for like Ding Dong and everybody that was at Downsound. Bad, 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 bad producer. So... He produced uh, Jamaican Hustle, which was one of the singles that I had put out, kind of test the waters, finding my new legs in the music and everything. Mm -hmm. And he ended up coming to D.C. And when he came to D.C., he was working at the next studio, but he called me and was like, yo, Edley, the vibes here is kind of hectic. I need somewhere I could just hone in. So I said, yo, Bridget, I got studio, I got room, I got everything you need here. You're not for going nowhere. So he came and he ended up staying with me for a year. And okay. within that year, that's how I was able to gather up the tracks to put my EP together that I have now. So that's the truncated exactly. version. A lot happened in between that. But yeah, that's how I kind of got back to the music. But yeah, okay. it was a lot, man. It was a lot going through building my studio, my house flooded because I live in a floodplain. Built back my studio again, flooded again. I was like, God, you just really don't want me to do <laughs> Stay in front of this computer screen for the rest of my life. But God was still showing me that, hey, you're sure you want this? This is what you want? I'm going to make you go through some things. I never, I never make you bond in an extreme poverty. You never bond with a gold spoon, but mm -hmm. I gave you a mother that would pray for you. Yeah. And I put a spirit in you where, you know, certain moral, certain moral standards you kept to yourself. You never have a bag of woman 
and I bought a baby mother out of the road and everything. So because you at least followed 80% of the things that I needed you to follow, I'll give you back a running out of music. Might not be the run that you want, but it's the run that's going to allow you to tell your story and make people know that you're on the weak fence they might perceive you to be. Mm-hmm. Right? Makes makes total sense. Yeah. And this here, so then this is where you're doing, and this is where Shineless Records was born. So then right. you could put out your stuff or you have artists that you want to work to. What was the whole reasoning behind putting out a Shineless Records? Well, Shineless, it, it, it kind of it came from just how I am, shine mm-hmm. all of us. Like, I'm the type of person, if me have a nice car, I'm a bridging them for have a nice car. Mm-hmm. If me have a studio, I'm a bridging the music. I don't want you to have to depend on my studio and when I'm in it or when I allow you to use mine. I'm going to empower you for buy your own studio. So me having a company, it wasn't per se to sign artists and have them under my wing and me had a big man and them, I'm an artist and all that. That's cool, but Really, I just want to be a hub and a venue that a young artist can come to to find out what needs to be done for them to empower themselves and put their music out. If you want me to put your music out and show you how to do it on a professional level, I can. I have the capabilities. Like, I have my own video equipment. I have my own studio recording equipment. I have my mixing, mastering people, producers. Everything is here. You know, and that took time. That took years of networking and building relationships and working a nine to five to be able to purchase these things because the born American royalties, them scanty, you know, you might get that nice check. Yeah. First three months of the year and then some like a small check because our, our, our catalog is not actively being exploited by anyone. You know, mm-hmm. I think the label end up selling the, selling our masters to somebody and, you know, we've had a couple placements. I think one of our songs was in a Tyler Perry movie because I heard that Tyler Perry is a big Bond Americans fan. Never okay. met the man, but I did hear him put our song in one of his movies. Mm-hmm. And there was another movie that I saw. This is this is us a DJ movie that had Yardcore in it. But you know, if someone was there actively pushing our catalog, I'm sure we could have a lot more placements and be making a lot more money. You know, lucky enough, we were smart enough back then where we didn't just totally give away 100% of the rights to our music. So we still get a piece of the pie when they do exploit our music. But yeah. the people is what keeping Born Americans alive because we end up doing a couple of reunion shows now. That, <laughs> that's what I, that's that. what I wanted to know. Yes. About so mm-hmm. what ended up happening, there's a DJ, there's a prominent DJ in Washington, D.C. by the name of DJ Trini. And how this, how it came about, one day I was driving home and I was listening to the radio, which I rarely do. You know, nobody don't really listen to radio like that. But I was listening to the radio and Trini plays a Caribbean set on Saturday nights here in D.C. on 93 from okay. 9 o'clock till about 9.20. And he's playing, he's playing Warning Sign. And I'm like, I remember I sent him a new record. I don't know if it was my new record or a remix. I'm like, yo, Trini... Every time I send this man my new record, he goes back to the old music. He just can't let it go. So I go on my WhatsApp and I say, yo, Trini, why are you playing the old music? Why are you going to play the new song? And what ended up happening when I did that, good thing me is I'm on, because I'm computer savvy and I'm sure of myself. I'm in afraid of social media and the internet and the judgmentalness. I'm I'm active on social media. I argue with people on Facebook. Yeah. I'm, I'm posting on my Instagram. I'll put some snaps. Me, I'll start the TikTok now from a dog. I'm on. 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 I'm on
it's it's what the kids is into and i'm a kid at heart plus i still love the entertainment aspect of it so when we do that i'm putting it on my, on my instagram i think trini ended up reposting it and a promoter one of the big promoters that he knew in trinidad saw me on trini's post and said yo you know born jamaicans and trini said yeah i'm a dog them he's like I'm having a big show at the stadium in Trinidad. I want bunch of Americans to open for Damian Marley. And Trini's like, uh, that's going to be a hard task, but I'll ask. Yeah. So he calls me first because me yeah. other one was still in a communication with, with people like Trini, the DJs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And when he tells me, yo, I got a show for y'all in Trinidad, I'm like, yo, Trini, you know the group is not together. And, you know, me and Notch don't really speak. You know, we may have – I think – we saw each other maybe a couple months back. Uh, a mutual friend of ours who was there in the beginning with us mm-hmm. had an anniversary, and we saw each other. Okay. We talked and we caught up. Didn't really talk about music, but we said, "Yeah, man, we're gonna we're gonna talk, man. We're gonna talk. Let's catch up." And then I, I didn't talk to him after that. So when Trini called me, I said, "Yo, that's never gonna happen, brethren." <laughs> I was like, "As much as I would love to go to Trinidad right now and go do a show." I know that Notch is not going to be with it because Notch has his own thing now. He's Notch. People know him outside of Born American. So why would he want to split the money when he can go get the money on his own? So with that being said, Trini was like, I'm going to call him. I was like, you can call him. But I I didn't even think nothing of it. Mm -hmm. Trini called me back like three days later and was like, yo, Notch really interested in going and doing the show. I'm like, you lying. I lie. (laughs) (laughs) so we end up seeing each other and talking and going back and it was just like we picked up right where we left off you know it was still a vibes there and it's Mm -hmm. always a vibes with me and him because it's like a big brother little brother little brother big brother it's it's like back and forth with me and him for some reason so but we were able to come together and when we did the first rehearsal it was like we never even stopped performing together. It was just like everything fell back in sync. My size had changed because I'm a, I'm a, I'm in my ground. My voice caught up with my my body. I was like skinny mini, but now you know the rice and peas and everything kicking. The metabolism slowed down, but it is what it is. I embrace who I am, and so we did the rehearsal and we go to Trinidad. We do the show. And I can remember, I'm like, this is going to be a hard show to do because we haven't performed here in 20 years. Three, four generations have passed. The the, the, the few selectors that do play us, play us in the mix, but they don't play us like how they play the, the foundation, buries them and all that. That's part of their routine every week where the kids can learn the song. Like yeah. Orange Americans is one of those novelty groups that you, you pull it out of the plastic on Christmas day and you play it and you said this right that's yes. only get played upon christmas that day yeah and then go back into the plastic and wrap up till the year again we yeah. ju- we just became one of them type of groups so the kids like all the 30 and up people were losing their minds while we on stage i could see the, the young people on the side and in the front looking like why is this lady acting like this how does she know this song i never heard this song before and i'm gonna tell you a funny story when we did the trinidad show we so we rock the people show us love you know and 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 we come off stage first person i see is shabarang's um prior manager specialist yes specialist sees a specialist says yo i came here just to see y'all perform i don't know still have it 
want to stick together and that's it. No, I hear nothing else. And then he just walks off. <laughs> like a real big man. Yeah, he just walks off from us after he said, like, he, he just he just reprimanded us for even being separate and then walks off. Then, you know, I see Sharon Burke. I see a lot of the tastemakers of reggae because this is Damian Marley in Trinidad. Everybody's flying in for, say, the big money. And it's funny because when we first started out, we were doing a video in Jamaica for Sweet Honey. And Damian Marley was a key, was probably like maybe 12, 13 at the time. His mom brought him to our video shoot. And she said, yo, he kept me up all night and said, yo, we are drive for the link Bond Americans because I want to know why they mixing hip hop and reggae together. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I can remember Damian Marley looking at us, you know, he give us the Bob Marley face. And he's like, why, why, why won't I mix hip hop and reggae together? And he's a little kid, and we just like, yo, it just sound good, man. Right. And we're there laughing, and he's he's just looking at what's going on with the video. And funny enough, we open for him at that show, and then I get the word that him and Bungie Garland is doing the video to their song the next day. The message. Yeah. So I watch and say, yo, I'm going to Damian Marley video shoot, man. We should go down there as United Front, you know, just to see what's up, to kind of continue where we where we left off all those years when he came to our video shoot. So we arranged it, we made it down there, met with Bungie, saw Fayon, Major Hype was even there, Popcorn was there, and even Popcorn at the show, Popcorn, after the show, I saw Popcorn, and Popcorn saw me as I was walking past, and he said, yo, Maji. You know, some me know, me know you're from somewhere. He's like, yo, me used to hear them tune in a Jamaica when me I grew up. And I'm like, yo, you know who I am? I was like, <laughs> we like five generations removed from each other. But it's good to know that he remembered growing up seeing us on TV in Jamaica. Because we weren't, remember, we weren't big in Jamaica. So, yeah. but, you know, him being one of the youths and him being into music, he probably saw a video and said, yo, you said them you about and for him to see me and acknowledge me as one of the leaders of the new school, it made me feel good. It made me feel good to know that, yeah, man, the, some, of, some of the new school even know, know of us and heard of us. Because I know we so vanguard and unspoken and unsung in the reggae music circles. You never know who is who. Most people don't even remember Born Americans. So, no, but it's like you see, if you grew up in, I would say, well, I could only speak from a Canadian North American side, you 1000%. If you remember early Bojo, Shaba, Patra, who else was around? No, Bojo, Shaba, Patra, born Jamaicans. That's the group that you're going to remember. And then right. the Mad Lions came along with the KRS and stuff, but Bojo, Shaba, Patra, born Jamaicans. That was it's, what you remember. It's funny you say that because we only probably did. All right, I remember us doing much music, mm -hmm. you know, with the big window that show. And I remember, I don't remember if we we performed. I, I think we probably went to an event, and then probably a couple years down the line, I don't know if I went there as an individual or we did it. We had a booking in Windsor, but I think that was after the group split up. So I don't think, to my recollection. Orange Americans ever performed in Canada, ever, nowhere. Okay. Never. We never got to perform in Canada. That's so, Drake, crazy. if you're watching OVO Fest, put the bag together, man. Call Chubbs. Orange Americans is around. We can make it happen for you. You understand? And you Nameless see, plug. <laughs> but the funny thing with it, remember what the story you just gave me about how you 
how you got to Trinidad in the first place. It was just by social media. Somebody right. put it out there. The craziest things happen because of podcasts, a little interview, a one-minute video. The world's craziest things happen. Right. You understand? Right. Right now, we're in 2020, all right? Would we ever see a Born to Americans album or a tour or anything? Is that is that something that could possibly happen, or is that written off? What's the deal with that? I mean, I would say up to the top of this year, I probably felt like the possibilities was there. But then certain things have transpired and certain things have been said and put in an atmosphere that I got a wind of that led me to believe that, okay, all the hope that I, that I built up and all the good vibes from doing, because that wasn't the only reunion show we did. We ended up going to Bogota okay. and Chile. Chile was a big show, stadium. We were the headliners, sold off, promote, I make your money and was happy. The fans yeah. loved it. We went to Bogota, Colombia and did Hip Hop Al Parquet with Rhapsody is a Grammy winning rapper and we were the headliner. She did the Saturday night, we did the Friday night. And this is downtown Bogota, you know, like Central Park, 20,000 people. The the footage is online for those who don't believe. And we rocked it. We worked for like an hour and they knew all our songs in South America. Yeah. Spanish speaking Latin country. So that just let me know that the music is out there living without us even being together. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, I always keep it in the back of my mind and try to keep up. But there's times that I'm just like, yo, I don't even want to be bothered with having those those thoughts because it'll just stop me from the trajectory of thinking that, hey, you need to set yourself up as an individual. Because like I said, me depending on a situation or an individual to have a, a like mind and a like mindset and be able to work and do business and respect each other, you know, we two different people. And sometimes it just, it, it'll make sense to one and don't make sense to the other. So I just have to keep on respecting that. Still love him like a brother. And when we see each other, we speak and we cordial with each other. But at this moment, I think on a business wise, we're on two different planes. He choose to do his business a certain way. And I'm more just a people's person, a world person. And I could work it out with anybody. I don't hold, I don't, I don't, how should I put this? I, I I try to look for the good in everyone and try to do good deeds and good and and approach everyone with a positive stance. We can handle business and respect each other. We don't have to go have a drink after business is done, but we can handle business and respect each other. You understand, and that's what it is. I've heard somebody say there are no permanent enemies right. nor friends in right. business. This is true. It's, it's just true. business. Crazy. But the business has to make sense too. It has to make sense. And you have to be, you have it's a give and take. It ain't just on your terms alone and you either go with it or we don't bother with it. You, it, you have to give and take. You have to respect each other's individuality and how each other thinks and come to a common ground. You know, mm -hmm. there's no reason why our ships can go back and, and go to the ports that we built. If you feel like your ship just don't fit the port there no more and you you prefer to sail by it, all I could do is respect it. I hear you 1,000%. Where all of this story here makes sense why you would even name your new EP based on talent. You understand? Because yeah. I know this is your first full body of work in about 20 years. Right, right. You know? Just from all the stories that I told you and what I had to go through to even get to this point. Cause I could have, I could have made 10 songs and put them on SoundCloud and YouTube and 
just threw out a little press release and pray for the best. But putting out this EP wasn't even about me charting. I didn't even I didn't even register the EP to chart till after I put it out because okay. I already knew. For one, I knew that an individual body of work for me was going to be met with a lot of resistance. And when I say a lot of resistance, I mean that after a certain amount of time has passed in the music business, people just automatically assume that it's over for you. Got they it. put you in what Jamaica call a dinosaur category. So even if you send them anything and it sounds good, it's automatically going to click in their mind that this is not trendy. This is not young. This is not what's happening right now. So I'm not even going to pay any attention to this. So I'm fighting against that as well as, as well as I'm fighting against a microwave music mentality generation where you hot on Tuesday and Wednesday night. They like when you when your album coming out. And I'm like, yo, Regin, I just put my album out last night. Yeah, man, me listen it, but classic. When the next album coming out, me need it by Friday. Me need some new music for listen to. And I don't know how people operate in that type of mechanics of making music where you just throw music out there and pray for the best because my music is like my child. Like I would never take up, have my, my pretty daughter. I know make sure I'm a beard iron, put the best clothes I could afford to put on her and make sure her hair done. And when she go outside, she look like she lives somewhere. Why would you do that to your songs? Why would you just make your songs and throw them out into the wind for the internet to do whatever they want with them? Nah. That's why when I came with this body of work, I made sure I had two videos, six songs that's mixed to the best quality that I could afford and have at the time and made sure that the songs meant something to me. And I didn't really go trendy. I had the trendy songs. I could have made the dance hall, ding dong, you know, whatever is going on right now, yeah. six type of style. Like I have the ability to, uh, to emulate those things, but I'm older. Why am I, why I'm going to try to copy what a 20 year old or a 21 year old is doing in Jamaica yeah. at that when I don't live that life. I never lived that lifestyle before. Mm -hmm. So my music had to reflect me. So I knew that it would be an uphill climb with this project and it's going to take time for it to resonate with certain people or for them to even acknowledge that it exists. And I'm okay yeah. with that. And the good thing is like you're you're realistic and realistic in this business is something that would carry you a far away because a lot of people right. have far out thoughts and all type of craziness and stuff like that. Because when I listened and even watched the uh, music video for Babylon Breeze, right. it's almost like I felt like I was in 94, 95, 96 when you guys came out, but just in 2020 where it was that feel just updated to right now. That's I how it that a lot. So mission accomplished with it. And that's all I, I knew with that song because, because the elements of that song is from another song. So I knew that I was faced with, okay, you can't really take this song as far as you would like to because it has other people's elements in there. And that could be a legal issue for you. But I knew that the song will resonate with my core audience and people who are of that like mind, even with the new generation. Mm -hmm. So I knew it was important for me to have that song on my project. And when I put it out, you know, everybody tells me, yo, you, it's like you put me in a time capsule and took me back to when you was hot. So now I feel like you still hot, even yeah. though it don't sound like a while going in a Jamaica right now. Mm -hmm. So I can't play it around my peers that, that, that's listening to what's going on in Jamaica and only rate that. But me personally, I the baddest song you ever made. Yeah. 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 So, no, it's so, tough. So, yeah. So, no, it's but, crazy. Yeah. And even the other video for um, Factory Skin, 
Yeah. Okay. How did you come up with that? And where did you actually shoot that video? So I shot that video. I went to Jamaica last year and our brethren, our mutual brethren that me and Notch has, his name is Big Dan. Big up to Big Dan. Mm -hmm. um, he, he, he owns a beautiful home in, um, in St. Elizabeth, Jamaica. So he called me and told me he was going down if I want. He's like, I know you're working all the time, Edley. Come, come chill out. Come see the house. So I ended up going down there. And I said, you know what, Big Dan? I just bought, I had just bought my camera equipment. I was like, I just bought these cameras and I need to learn how to use them. So you know what? I'm going to come down to Jamaica, chill out. And Rose Summers, the producer that worked on the project, lives in Jamaica. So I called Rose. He lives in Kingston. I said, yo, I'm in St. Elizabeth. We got the crib. We good. I'm with Dan. Let's let's try to knock out some videos while I'm here. I think I was in Jamaica for maybe ten days. Okay. So Ro came up from Kingston, and we just we just start experimenting. We didn't even know how to use the camera, so it, like the videos ain't even at sixty percent capacity of what the cameras can actually do. But right. we got it good enough where I was like, yeah, man, I could present this with the music, so at least I have some type of visuals with what I'm doing. And the the young lady that edited the video is. Kit Walker, you remember the guy I told you that took our demo to yes. his daughter, who he met her mom being on tour with us, wow. end up growing up, going to school and becoming a film editor. So I was able to send her the footage and was like, hey, I want this scene to be here, this scene to be here. I want this thing to spin when my hands move. And she was able to put it together for me. So look how, look how fostering those relationships and me having those relationships with different people, I was able to use the resources around me. Now, if I was on my high horse, ooh, now nah, I talk to Kit no more. Ooh, Roa, yeah, yeah. Medea Jamaica, but me on some flossing and some money and yeah. girls and champion. I, I, but I was always thinking, like, everything I'd done from 98 when I left the group mm -hmm. up to the point where I was in Jamaica with my own, own camera equipment, filming my own video for my own project, Mm -hmm. that's what I was working towards the whole time. And trust me, I went in the corner and shed a tear like, damn, I finally got to the point where I'm actually filming the video for my, for another project for myself. Like yeah. I couldn't believe it. And I was doing it and all these people were there on the set. We had the, we had the extras and everything and everybody was working towards the goal. Like I hadn't had that feeling in so long. It was like, it was an emotional feeling to know that, yo, all that work you put in going through the flood group, breaking up, you know, being, being with mad lion, working hard in the studio all the time, doing all that thing, all that came to this point. So at least if I, when it's all said and done, when my daughter go back and look at my story, it doesn't end with, yo, born Americans broke up and you never did music again. And you never tried and you gave up. At least she will see based on talent and she will see two videos. She will see all these interviews and be like, yo, my dad kept on pushing even when everybody wrote him off. That's the only thing. That's the only accomplishment that I really want from that project is for people mm -hmm. to see it's based on my talent why I'm still here. Nothing yeah. else. Yeah. So they can't say again, as we we're speaking earlier in the conversation that it's always oh, Notch was the front one. You ride in on his coattails. That's the only reason you're here and all those stuff there. Cause right. you said in the beginning, you did a lot of stuff that you weren't actually taking credit for back then because this is a group. So I'm going to do it. It's for the group. But then right. you learn, okay, there's a group, but there's also still me. So I still got to take credit for something I'm doing for the group. Right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. At the end, at the end of the day, before I get you out of here, what do you want your legacy to be? I want my legacy just to be that Edley Shine was somebody that 
that loved his music and sacrificed and kept on building his musical legacy for others to learn and be educated by what he'd been through. Because at the end of the day, I represent the underdog of the music. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm not the guy that will come up and DJ and everybody fall in love with me. I, I'm not a hear that one, yeah, DJ. Hear that one, yeah. And rinse off. Yeah. 20 bars and you say yeah man the artist butter and that's not your style i don't walk around with tree ground followers and, and cheerleaders around me so my mm-hmm. only claim to fame is the work that people see me put out and they and they always wonder how do you consistently keep on just reinventing and being yeah. creative and doing things i get up every morning take a shower make sure my daughter is secure i work my job and then i come home and i do music every day is a 15 hour day for me. Look at you. That's what I choose to do. So just hard working, love his music, stuck to his music, stuck to his guns. And whatever else comes after this is just gravy in life. As long as my daughter can grow up and go to college and be our own done of our own door, keep your own yard, yeah. and nobody can cower down and tell her, yo, you have to wait your turn. Nah, I'm not, I'm not growing her to wait her turn. Take your turn. Take your turn. Take your turn. You understand. You understand. No, it's crazy. And there's one question that I didn't get to ask you. This is really gonna seal the deal for this um podcast here. You said, okay, you left the group, you're with Madeline and stuff. What did it feel like going from the stadium stages now to a cubicle where I now have to work a job? How long did it take you to actually accept that? Okay, you know what? I gotta go work this job now. I mean it's probably one of the hardest decisions I had to make because, you know, there's a, there's a level of shame. It ain't no shame in working because mm-hmm. everybody got to work to get paid. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there was, there's been days cause I used to take the train to work when I worked downtown in DC and people would look at me and be like, man, you look mad familiar. Some people would recognize me and I got on my shirt and my tie. Yo, w- one time I came off the train and dude was like, yo, I would have never thought I'd see you coming off the train, going to work. I didn't even think you had a job. <laughs> I thought you were rich living in Jamaica somewhere. And I'm like, nah, Bridget, we all got to work. Sometimes sometime your work is on a higher level. Sometimes your work is just the, the gritty nine to five. Either way, it's a job. In the music industry, it can turn into a job after a while. Okay? You're on playing train automobiles. You're doing 10 interviews a day. You don't have no time for yourself. You're missing family. You're missing birthdays. You're missing all that. So, yeah, you know, it, it was a level of facing reality and knowing that in order to even get back to the music, this is the only way. It's either this or I turn to the streets, and the streets wasn't an option for me because I didn't grow that way. And I didn't want to disappoint my mother who fought with me and sacrificed so much to even have me in this world. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try the quick way of trying to get back to the glamorous life. It wasn't that important to me. It was more important to be a man yeah. than to be a star in the music business. Yeah. Wow. Your story is one of those gems that I'm telling you, when people hear this, they're going to say, wow, they had no clue because again, your story that you're telling me right now in 2020, somebody's going to have this exact same story 20 years from now. Somebody that we see on all these big stages doing all these great things is going to have this exact same story 20 years from now. This is true. Yeah, it's the music business, boss. It is. Wow. What it is. It eats its young. 
Yeah, 100%. Anybody you want to big up, leave your contacts, anything you want to say right now, Edley, the floor is yours. Yo, I just want to big up the whole Muscle Entertainment Report podcast. I appreciate you having me. You can follow me at Edley Shine. The name is right there. I'm on every social media platform. Please follow me on Spotify. Follow me on Apple Music or any streaming services and stream the music. That's more important. Get the numbers up so we can take it to the next level and keep bringing y'all some of the good Jamaican sound that you miss because it lives here with me. And as long as I got breath in my lungs, I'm always going to give you that feeling. You see, yeah. so much respect to the massive them. I'm big up to the whole of Canada, big up T dot, big up all the new artists, them that's out there, OVO, Tory Lins, the whole of them. I see y'all, I see the Jamaican influence in there. I love it. Much respect. <laughs> you understand. It's so crazy. And I know, I, it's not even, I don't think, I know for a fact, with how the world works right now, right. you're going to get a crazy phone call one day that's going to completely change your life because you have a catalog already of what's going on. This might not, might not be today, might not be tomorrow, but I almost to the way how life is working and having a catalog, like what you guys have, it's, the only person that could mess that up would be you guys. Kind of phone calls are gonna come. Right. Much respect. I appreciate that. From your mouth to God's hands, yo. You I, understand. I, I leave it to the father. He knows best. Trust me. Can't wait to actually meet up with you in the flesh. And I decided to sit down in the studio and we chop it up again. But that was an amazing, amazing, amazing story. Respect. Amazing. Edley. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is Muscle, and this has been another Two Line Music Huts Entertainment Report podcast, and we are out. This podcast is brought to you by www.twolinedmusichut.com.